uh, offer a, a brief commercial to the fact that next Sunday is Promotion Sunday in all of our Sunday school departments. That especially affects our kids, though. Our kids are teenagers, so we'll have a, a group of uh, a group of kids promoting up into children's ministry out of our preschool ministry, a group promoting into our youth ministry out of our, out of our children's ministry, and lots of activity in, in each of those areas uh, next week. And so we're excited about all that as school is uh, about to happen in the next few days. I know that's like, I might as well have just uh, said some foul words, right, with uh, all the kids and the teachers in the room here like, no, not yet, we're not ready. But uh, it's coming one way or the other, so we might as well prepare ourselves for the inevitable, but of course along with that means kicking off a new year, new fall, and, and all that goes with that. So we're excited about that. And, and with saying that, it's as good a time as any as, as well to sort of just uh, issue the, the call that we, that we regularly extend that if you are not already connected somewhere in a, a group, uh, some, some kind of a Sunday school class where you can study the Bible with people and, and live life with them and, and, and be involved and invested with one another, next week would be a great time to start that. You may have been thinking, well, we, you know, we want to start, but it's, it's, we, it'd be awkward to come in and be the only new people or, or that sort of thing. Well, some other people will be moving around a little bit next Sunday with it being promotion Sunday. So we kind of shuffle the deck in different areas and some folks decide to change on that day or move this direction or that direction. I don't want to say move up or down. When you, when you get old enough, it's no longer up or down, right? It's more of a lateral movement, however you want to think of that. But next Sunday would be a great time as well to maybe plug in and try a group if you aren't involved in a group already. And so we would love to be able to connect you with, with a group somewhere in the life of our church, a Sunday school class, small group where you can connect, study the Bible with people, pray together live life together. And so if you're interested in that, please see our staff. We would, we would love to connect those dots for you. You can also communicate with us using that registration card that I mentioned earlier in our welcome time. Just fill that out, indicate something on there about how you're looking for a group and drop that in the offering plate later this morning and we'll follow up with you this week so that we can help connect the dots and find the right place for you to jump in and, and live life with, with a group of folks that way, all right? Ruth chapter four this week, we're gonna finish our study in the book of Ruth, but before we jump into actually reading the text, uh, I wanna just say publicly, uh, I wanna acknowledge a huge word of thanks to Corey Kirkland for jumping in and preaching last Sunday, did a fabulous job, and uh, uh, actually, if, if you were here last Sunday, you probably heard some of the story, but Corey was supposed to be preaching today, for me today, and I was gonna be here last week Pike and I had gone on a brief man trip, is what we called it, you know, for his 13th birthday. We got away to Washington, D.C. for a few days and then had just like the fiasco of all fiascos trying to get home last Saturday. We got stranded in the airport in D.C. overnight and, and basically, uh, I want to say slept in the airport, except for you don't really sleep in an airport, so we stayed in the airport, you know, overnight and switched airlines and all of this, you know, stuff to get home. Uh, and, and so we did that. Sunday was Pike's 13th birthday, last Sunday. And so he really wanted to be home on his birthday. And so uh, when they told us that, you know, at about 11.30 Saturday night, when they told us, well, it's going to be Monday before we can get you out of here and get you home, we were looking at all of our options, getting a car and driving home or whatever. You know, we just, he, he wanted to be home, and, and I wanted to be home as badly as he did. And so uh, we switched airlines, got it all worked out when it was all said and done. But the bottom line from that story that is I knew at about, at about 8.30 last Sunday or Saturday evening, I knew that it was not looking good for us to get home. And there wasn't really a backup plan in place. 
And so I called Corey at the last hour and said, okay, could we switch? I know this is obviously last minute, but would it be possible? And of course, he jumped in and was more than willing and, and ready to go. And so, Corey, I, I appreciate that and appreciate all that you do. I, I have told other people this before. I, I've even said this to Corey, but I'd take an army of Corey Kirkland's. And uh, so we're so blessed uh, to have him and and for him to do that. Ruth chapter 4, as we kind of jump into finishing the story of Ruth, what we see today is that redemption comes full cycle. In the story of Ruth, we've been following along with this, this path toward redemption that has been happening in the life of Ruth as we've seen her go from being married to the daughter of Naomi, or excuse me, the husband of Naomi and Elimelech, to losing her husband, to venturing with her mother-in-law into a foreign land that was not her land, struggling for survival into now a situation where not only does she, not only does she stand to do okay, but, but actually through this, this redemption that comes full circle in, in her story of her character arc, if you want to think of it that way, we find that God is working in all of this to take this Moabite woman, this seemingly insignificant, uh, regular Moabite woman, and give her a beautiful place in the story of God's redemption because she becomes, through, through her marriage to Boaz, a part of the lineage of King David and even ultimately Jesus himself. And what, what an awesome picture this is of how redemption comes full circle in Ruth's life. But really what that does, as we've seen all along, is it draws us back to understand in our lives how God's plan of redemption in our lives also carries a similar effect in the sense that when God redeems us, when He saves us from sin, that He doesn't just restore bits and pieces, but by His grace, He begins to restore and make new the whole of our lives in a, in a way that, that oftentimes we, we look at and, and all we can do is just stand and be amazed at what God has done. And we see that so clearly in Ruth's life, but it's intended to show us how God is still in the, in the business of writing these, these amazing stories in our lives today. And so I want us to see that as we finish our study in Ruth chapter 4 this week. And as we've seen all along, as this story is, is building to a point of climax and now comes to its completion that there, there is a perfect timing to everything in the way that these events transpire. When I arrived home last weekend after the, the trip and, and the journey of all, and all of that, one of the first things that I did after, I, after we got to the house and, and I grabbed a shower, we'd been in an airport for you know, what felt like a week at that point, and, and so grabbed a quick shower, and then it was church time, Sunday night, so headed this way, but before I came to church Sunday night, I went over to the Townsend's house and spent a little bit of time with, with Margaret and, and Brandon. And one of, one of the things that we were talking about in that moment uh, in, in, in just reminiscing about JM and talking about the, the recent loss of JM, but then even in their own family, they had, they had a, a grandson or great-grandson that had been, that had been born uh, just days before JM passed. And, and Margaret mentioned something about how, you know, in our family we've seen We've seen the full cycle of life this week. We've seen birth and we've seen loss. And, and, and it's like it's all come full circle for us. But you know what? I got to thinking about that and dwelling on that uh, some over the next few days and, and thinking about how that's, that's really the case in a lot of our lives, isn't it? That oftentimes we see those pieces of how the puzzle fits together from, from birth to death. At times we, we get this, this understanding, this awareness that 
that the story of redemption that we find ourselves in in believers is bigger than any of us. It's bigger than any one of us. And yet we find ourselves in the stream of something that God has been doing from, we, we could say really ultimately from eternity past that will carry its way on into eternity future. This, this beautiful story of redemption where God takes things that are broken and makes them new. And each one of us find ourselves in the midst of this story when by faith we come to we come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And this morning, we see those puzzle pieces, if you will, stacked together in Ruth's life. But I hope that as we, as we really zero in on, on this, that you will be able to identify in your own life, in your own story, how these pieces fit together as well. And so let's read together from Ruth chapter 4 this morning. and, and Let's see this story of redemption come full circle In the life of Ruth, we read that Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. Now, the gate in ancient times, in ancient cultures, particularly in in ancient Israel, but really even beyond just Israelite culture, the gate was the place where judgment happened. Oftentimes in a city, because their structures, their technology, and, and their buildings and such weren't like what we have today, they didn't have necessarily a, a courthouse where, where these public things would transpire and take place. So oftentimes, at the gate of the city, which is the place where people would come and go, that was a public gathering place. And so if there was to be a legal matter of some kind that was to be handled, if there was to be some kind of, a, of an official proceeding that required any kind of mediation or jurisdiction, anything of that nature, it would often happen at the gate of the city. And so that's where Boaz, that's where Boaz is in this story. You remember that the night before was when Ruth went to him there at the threshing floor and lay at his feet and asked, boldly asked, would he redeem her? Would he cover her with, with his wings, so to speak, with the edges of his garment, a sign of his willingness to take her into his household to redeem her? Essentially, Ruth proposed marriage to Boaz, and now Boaz is making good on fulfilling his promise to do everything he could to redeem Ruth, either through re- being able to redeem her himself or finding the, the near kinsman who would become her kinsman redeemer in the story. And so Boaz has gone to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And so Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. This is essentially that he essentially what Boaz is doing is he's gathering an audience. He's putting together a, a, a jury almost of sorts, witnesses who can witness this event, these events that are about to transpire, the proposal that he's about to make to this, this nearer kinsman uh, that we see in the story. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. And if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me and I'm, and that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, essentially what's happening here 
to, to kind of catch you up in case you've missed some of the other parts of this story, there was a custom, a cultural practice in this day that if a man died and, and he had not produced an heir with his wife, then his brother would marry his wife, his widow, and try to produce an heir so that through that heir, all of the inheritance that would have been his rightfully would be passed on to that heir, the land and the other possessions, in his name by the heir produced with his brother. And if there was no brother to produce an heir, then there was the, the law laid out a certain particular order of uh, near relation, you know, cousins and, and so on, that were allowed then to step in and act as this redeemer who would marry the widow, provide an heir, and the inheritance that would have originally belonged to the now deceased man pass through that heir in the name of the family. That seems like a really weird practice to us, the idea of marrying your sister-in-law because your brother died, that sort of, we think that's really weird. At least I think that's weird, right? I have two brothers, and that just seems totally weird to me. But that was the culture of their day, right? That was, that was the practice of the day. And essentially what has happened in this story is that Ruth and Boaz, there's been a spark that has, uh, that has, that has been seen between the two of them. That This relationship has sort of kindled this flame of affection between the two of them. And Boaz's desire is to marry Ruth and redeem her, but there was someone else who was a nearer kinsman in the line of this, this family inheritance that had the rights to marry Ruth and redeem her first. And so Boaz has approached this man, that's who's referred to here as the Redeemer, and he's essentially proposed the situation to him. Look, Naomi needs to sell the land. If you buy the land, you buy Ruth along with it so that you might redeem her and produce an heir. And notice that his response is, at first it's like when, when he thinks it's just the land, he's like, sure, I'll buy the land. But then when he realizes that it would mean taking Ruth along with the land, he says, I can't do that because I would then jeopardize my own inheritance with my family, with with with." My wife, essentially, he's saying. And so he can't do that, which, of course, opens the door of opportunity for exactly what Boaz has wanted all along. Now he can step in. He can purchase the land, redeem Ruth, and become her husband. So verse 7, we see this. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So essentially, if there was some kind of an official transaction, an exchange, the way that they would seal the deal rather than signing you know, legal documents and those things. Today, when we, when we do that, right, if you've ever purchased a home, you know that you feel like you're signing away your life and you sign page after page after page after page in these legal documents. It, wouldn't it be so much easier if all you had to do was just take off your shoe and hand it to the other person? Here you go, right? Of course, you'd wear your old shoes. You wouldn't want to give away a nice pair of shoes. But that's what, that's what happens here, right? Verse eight. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house 
like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. And may you act worthily in Ephratath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you through this young woman. Now that's a little bit of foreshadowing here because Boaz is an, is an or one of Boaz's ancestors, I should say, is Perez. Boaz is in the lineage of Perez, who was the son of Judah, one of the fathers of Israel, right? One of the, one of the, the namesakes of the 12 tribes of, of Israel. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then look at this, how the, the, the story finishes here with a brief, uh, a brief ancestral lineage. And, and notice how all of this fits together with, with the, the lineage, ultimately, of, of Jesus. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And then we go on from there to understand Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, that it was through, it was through this same lineage, ultimately, that Jesus was produced. That Jesus himself, uh, through through, uh, through the house of his, his father Joseph, became an heir of David in the lineage, this same lineage that God produced. So God takes this Moabite woman, this outsider who seemingly doesn't belong, and beautifully grafts her into the story of his redeeming purpose. In fact, she becomes, in a sense, uh, a part of the one of the mothers of Christ in, in, in the sense that they would have considered her an, ancestrally that way. In fact, in Matthew's, in Matthew's ancestry, in Matthew chapter 1, there are five different women that are listed in the ancestry of Jesus, which is interesting because oftentimes in ancient cultures, in fact, all the time in ancient cultures, when you listed someone's in, uh, lineage, when you traced their ancestral heritage, you did it always through the men. You didn't list the women you listed the men, and yet there are five different times in the ancestry of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 that women are specifically named, and one of those happens to be Ruth, an agent of God's plan in redemption and bringing about Christ. What a beautiful picture that is. And as we, as we examine this and we see, again, Ruth's story come full circle, travel its, its full distance here, there, there are three things that we see about this redemption this morning. The first is this, is that we see, we see in this story that God is redeeming the past. God is redeeming Ruth's past here in this story. What we know from Ruth, the story in chapters 1, 2, and 3, is that Ruth was essentially left with no inheritance, with no host, no prospect of the future when her husband died. And yet, God provides for her every step of the way. God 
through his providential hand, brings her into the, the fields of Boaz, where she is noticed by Boaz, who cares for her, who provides for her physical needs, who says to her, you, you stake in my fields, you work in my fields along my people, because I have told them that they should not lay a hand on you. And we also see that Boaz tells his hired hands that they are to leave behind parts of the grain, parts of the harvest, for Ruth to gather so that he, so that he would provide for her. We see his interest in in Ruth, we see in this story, in this picture of the past, that Boaz, in a sense, is, is sort of this, this, this type of this character that points us to God in the way that God redeems us. In the same way that Boaz redeems Ruth, in the same way that he, that he purchases her redemption, in the same way that he gives her rest that she was longing for in Ruth chapter 2 that her mother-in-law Naomi wished for, we see that God provides that for us as well. So, it, we see Ruth's past is, is fully redeemed in this story. And we think about our lives. Truth is, each of us has a past as well, right? You think about the things that we've done in the past, the, the sins that we've done, the mistakes that we've made, the wrongs that we've committed in the past. And what we understand by the story of the gospel is that God has the power not only to save us, not only to redeem us, but to forgive and, and mend the brokenness of our past. We read in the Old Testament scriptures, we read things like the Psalms that, that show us that God separates us from our sin as far as the east is from the west, that he remembers them no more. We see this beautiful picture of how God has the power not only to save, but to restore, to make good what was broken in, in the past. You know, the, the irony of this story is, is, is this, that there was a nearer kinsman than Boaz. There was another man who stood closer in his relationship to Ruth's husband than, than, than Boaz. Another man who stood to be the one who could redeem her and save her, and yet his desire was for the land, but not for Ruth. He didn't want to mess up his own inheritance. So in his attempt to preserve his inheritance, in his attempt to preserve his own name, what he does is he essentially excludes himself from the story of what God is doing. Because here today we know the name of Boaz, we know the name of Ruth, and the name of this nearer kinsman is entirely lost and forgotten, isn't it? This man who wanted to preserve his own inheritance instead of becoming a part of the, the story of what God was doing, ultimately his, his identity is lost in, in all of this, in the story of his inheritance and his family. We, we know nothing of those. And yet, here we see the story of Ruth and Boaz. You know, it reminds me that in our lives, when we wrestle against God, when we try to, when we try to control the situation and do things in our own way and our own power and our own timing instead of resting and trusting and following the hand of God, what we end up doing is we, we, we essentially become lost in the shuffle because we miss what it is that God wants to do. Ruth and Boaz here are content to wait for God's timing. Boaz desires to redeem Ruth, but rather than scheming for this to happen in a, in a, in a way that's uh, somehow secret or, or, or covert, he, he does everything in the open. 
He gathers the elders at the city gate. He brings this relative to sit down. He, he, although his desire certainly is to redeem Ruth, he gives this other man the opportunity to do it first because it was fully the right of another. And so he, all of this plays itself out in a public way so that Boaz might, might ultimately know for certain that, that he's done everything right in this story, in this situation. And through all of this, we see that God has a plan all along. That God was working in, in the situation providentially. He was working in these circumstances to bring about Ruth's ultimate redemption. And, and even, as we're going to see, for Ruth to become a bigger part of what God was going to do through, through David and, and on into Jesus. God redeems the past. Think about your life. Think about the things that you've done in the past. Our tendency is to try to cover over our past mistakes. Our tendency is to want to hide the things that we've done or to, in some way, to just push them into the closet, right? Like a child cleaning their room who wants to sweep everything under the bed or push it in the closet and close the doors and just out of sight, out of mind. That's what we want to do with, with our past oftentimes. And yet, what God wants is to come in and to take what's broken and to mend it and to take what's, what is seemingly irreparable and to repair it with his love and his grace. God weaves that together in Ruth's life and, and he's still in the business today of redeeming the past and weaving together the details of our lives. When we trust him, when by faith we wait on his timing. But not only do we see that God is redeeming the past in, the, in Ruth's story, we see that he's redeeming the present as well. Ruth's, Ruth's past is, is made whole in that Whereas once she had no hope, once she was abandoned, once she was the, the, the widowed uh, foreigner who traveled to this, this land where, where she would have been looked down upon, and in the past she, she had nothing, and now in the present moment she has, she has hope. Now in the present moment she has means to survive. We, we don't know everything about Boaz. There's not a lot of particulars given, but Certainly the story gives us enough of this picture of Boaz to know that he was a man of means. He had not only the means to purchase the land and provide, he had the means to have a, a team of workers that worked for him and, and other lands and other means to provide for Ruth even without this land and this part of the story. And so Boaz was a man of means. And so he has not only the desire but the ability to provide for Ruth in in the present, in the here and now, through purchasing the land and redeeming Ruth, through, through doing things the, the right way, essentially. You know, when we see that, again, it draws us closer in examining our own lives and seeing that God has the power not only to redeem the past in our lives, but to make right our current situation. He redeems the present. Now, I don't mean to say that when you follow Christ... You know, everything just, everything is just, you know, coming up roses and, and life is great all the time. Yesterday we were driving home from family vacation this past week in Colorado, as I mentioned. And as we were coming through the panhandle of Texas, there was a, a billboard that I saw that I laughed out loud when I saw this because it said, in large letters, it said, God wants you to win. Real big, that's what it said. God wants you to win. And I just laughed at that because I thought about all the times in life that, uh, you know, you think about all the times that, 
things don't go your way? What does winning even look like? Right? What, is it, what, is it, what does that mean, God wants you to win? Uh, I know this. I know that in the end, God wins. And I know that if I'm following him, that I win because he's already won the victory. So I know that much is true. But oftentimes, we mistake that to think that God wants to give us everything that we want here and now. That's not what it means when we say that God is redeeming our present. It doesn't mean that your every dream is going to come true, that following Jesus is, like, is akin to having a, a magic genie that you can, just, you can just make a wish and poof, it comes true. That's not the way that this works. And yet, in a way that Ruth could not have predicted and would not have even chosen, God makes her a part of this beautiful story of redemption and redeems not only her future name and her future situation, but her current present state. He puts a roof over her head. He gives her means. He gives her a loving husband who would take care of her and provide for her and her mother-in-law as well, who she now considers to be her own mother, right? It says Naomi, whom she loves as she presents her, her child. He, he gives her a child, which was the desire of her heart in the first place. God redeems her present situation when she is willing to trust him and to follow his plan. In our lives, the same thing happens. It's not always going to look like what you want. In fact, oftentimes, I can tell you from my own life and my own experience, it doesn't look anything like what I would have chosen or what I would want. And yet, in every situation, when I look backward and I see what God has been doing, I say, I couldn't have planned it any better myself, right? If we would be willing to trust God, to follow Him, to take those steps of faith, God has the power to redeem our past, but also to redeem our present situation, which means this morning, whatever whatever problems you're going through, whatever troubles and stresses, whatever worries and doubts and fears you bring in this room with you today, know this. God has a plan for your life. God has power to bring those plans into action. And God lovingly wants to provide for you if you would trust and follow him. Now, it won't look like what you want. I'll just, I'll just tell you that up front, right? Let's just get the, the bad news out on the table as well. It, oftentimes, it looks nothing like what we would have chosen. And yet, in every instance in my own life and in the lives of others that I know as well, I never could have done it better than get what God did, right? His plan is always best in the long run. He has the power to redeem our past and to redeem our present situation. Of course, it doesn't take much to guess the, the third point as well, and that is that God is redeeming the future in this, in this story, in this situation. A baby enters the picture. And as the baby enters in this picture, the, everything changes, right? Now, every parent can tell you that that's true of children. Having kids changes everything about our lives. This week, we celebrated, uh, we, well, in the past two weeks, really, we've celebrated the bookends in our family. Our oldest turned 13 this past Sunday, and earlier in the same week prior to that, our youngest turned six. And, and thinking about our, our children and thinking about, thinking about the change that has happened in our lives because of kids, having kids changes everything, right? Uh, oftentimes people will joke and they'll say something like, you know, I haven't slept good. I haven't slept good in a while. New parents will say something like, man, I haven't slept good in a month, you know, and I say, guess what? I haven't slept good in 13 years, you know. Uh, welcome to the new normal, right? That's just life from that point on. Uh, having kids changes everything, everything about their lives. I'll never forget when, when Pike became mobile, right? That's that point when, as parents, you really begin to realize, like, oh, what have we done? <laughs> what, have we, what have we gotten ourselves into when that precious child that would just stay wherever you laid them, when all of a sudden they begin to move? 
And then, and then the older they get, the more of an opinion they develop. And now, whereas before you just, you know, you easily chose for them, now it's, it's fits and it's tantrums because, no, that's not what they wanted, right? And, and they don't even have the ability to tell you what they want yet, but they can sure tell you that it's not what they want, right? And, and everything begins to change. And, of course, they get older and it becomes different things. And now here we are on, on the, the, sort of in the doorway into the teenage years, and it's a whole other story altogether, right? And, and yet at every stage of life, as we go through this, what, what my children have taught me, what being a father has taught me about my own life and my own need for redemption is that, that children change everything in our lives and our stories and our directions. But in the same way, it, it reminds us that one child had the power to change everything in the course of human history as well. Because it was that one child, Jesus, who was born, who lived a sinless, perfect life, and yet who offered himself on a cross as payment for us, payment for our sin. That one child that had the power to redeem us from the sin that we had committed. Titus chapter 2, verse 14 tells us that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 talks about this. Colossians chapter 1 verse 14 talks about this. Romans chapter 8 verse 23 talks about this, about how Jesus redeems us, about how he makes us new in our lives. But the, the picture is this, that this one child, this one son born had the power to change the course of history for all of mankind. And it's no coincidence that that one man stands in the lineage of this woman, Ruth. It's a picture of God's beautiful plan of redemption that's brought full circle in Ruth's life, in her own, in her own participation now, in God's story of redemption. And it draws us to this conclusion that if God is working that way in the life of Ruth and the lives of others, God has the power to do that in my life as well. Now, I don't mean to say that God's going to make you a part of the, the lineage of Christ, right? Not in, the, not in the physical sense of ancestry. That work is done. But the New Testament teaches that we are heirs. We are co-heirs with Christ, which means that now, through faith in Jesus, we become heirs in His lineage. By faith, we are adopted in as sons and daughters. We who once did not belong, now belong. We who once were not a people, 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us, we are a people, a people of His own possession, who are called out of darkness into marvelous light. That God has the power to redeem us and restore us and give us a hope and a future. And just as we see that God redeems Ruth's past and her present, and, and even in this situation, her future, God has the power to redeem our lives, past, present, and future, when by faith we trust in Him. This morning, do you know for certain that you have trusted in Jesus by faith? I don't mean to say that, that everyone becomes an automatic participant in this story of redemption. Because the Bible is clear that it is only when we come to Christ by faith, only when we surrender our lives to Him, that we become 
heirs, co-heirs with Christ. Only when we come to Him by faith, surrendering our lives, offering ourselves to Him, receiving that free gift of God, which is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord, the, the New Testament teaches, that we, that we are grafted in, that our names are written into the lineage, the story of this redemption of what God has been doing. And yet everyone who by faith calls in the name of Christ becomes a son, a daughter, becomes an heir of Him through God's saving power of redemption. Do you know, by, do you know for certain today that, that by faith you are a part of this, this lineage, this family tree that can point its way back to Jesus and His work on the cross? Today, if you recognize that there's never been a time when by faith you've surrendered your life to Christ, there's never been a moment when you have surrendered your life to Him, becoming an, an heir, becoming a part of this family, receiving this powerful work of redemption that, that can redeem not only past, present, but also future in your life. And today, would you not come to Jesus? Would you not surrender your life to Him? In a moment, we'll have a time of invitation, a time of response. And in that time of response this morning, if you recognize that you need to give your life to Jesus, you need to surrender your life to Him so that He would redeem you and redeem your story in the same way that, that, that Ruth's redemption was, was purchased through Boaz and his, and, and his sacrificial work to buy back this family land. In the same way that we see that Christ sacrificed Himself, His life as payment for our sin so that He might buy us back, so that He might redeem us from the brokenness caused by our sin. Today, would you be willing to surrender your life to Him so that you might be purchased, your freedom, your forgiveness, bought by the blood of Christ. If that's you, then in our invitation, I would encourage you, come forward. Let me, let me just pray with you a simple prayer of faith. Offering your life to God, admitting that you're, a believe, that, that you're a sinner, rather, believing that God sent Christ to die on the cross for you, confessing Him as Savior and Lord in your life. Would you be willing today to acknowledge your need for redemption and to receive a free gift that's already been purchased through the work that Jesus did on the cross. Maybe today you recognize that there's been a moment in your life where you have, where you have trusted in Christ by faith. You've received that gift of redemption, and yet, practically speaking, you live as though there's no hope. Practically speaking, you carry on trying to control, trying to force things yourself, trying to do things your way in your timing, on your terms. And what you need to hear this morning is this. God has a plan, and God has the power, and God has the providence to bring it all together in your life if you will just trust Him and wait on His timing. God can redeem past, present, future. What you and I must do is trust Him and follow Instead of trying to be out in front, making the decisions, leading the way, doing things on our timeline, we need to trust Him and follow His plan. Today, would you be willing to trust and follow God? In this time of invitation, our altars are open. If you sense God is working in your life, if you need to, to, to come and, and maybe be encouraged, maybe to have me pray with you today, I invite you to do that. If you want to come and kneel here at the altar and pray, I, again, I encourage you to do that as well. However God is moving in this time of response, I I would challenge you, trust and obey his leadership in your life. Would you, would you pray with me? Lord God, in this moment, in this time, as we, as we look to you and your work on the cross, Lord, as, we, as we're